It's April 6, 1933, and a huge crowd stands outside the wrought iron gates of the Anheuser-Busch Brewery in St. Louis, counting down the seconds. Ten, nine, They watch the second eight, hand on the brew house clock seven, jerk towards midnight. Inside the gates, brewery four, chief Gussie Bush stands three, at the truck loading bay, ready to one. give the signal. The crowd explodes into cheers. As they do, Bush starts waving his arm in a circular motion. Inside the gates, the trucks filled with Budweiser rev their engines. In the sky, fireworks explode into showers of dazzling red and white sparks. The large metal gates open, and the trucks blare their horns as they inch forward. The crowd bursts into applause, cheering the trucks along. It's been 13 long years since Prohibition turned off the taps. But at last, beer is back. Banning alcoholic drinks proved a gift to organized crime. Mobsters stepped in to satisfy the nation's longing for liquor and made big bucks. Faced with an unenforceable and unpopular law, President Franklin D. Roosevelt is now repealing Prohibition. Starting today, the sale of low-alcohol beer is legal. Full repeal will come by the end of the year. But the post-prohibition marketplace is a world away from the one that existed before 1920. Before the ban, there were 1,700 brewers in America. Now, just 700 remain. The saloons are gone, and breweries can no longer own bars or liquor retailers. Everyday life is different, too. People now own cars. Their homes have electricity and even refrigerators, developments that promise a boom in the take-home market for beer. Not that there are many beer drinkers anymore. Plenty of people kept boozing through the Prohibition years and after years of drinking bootleg liquor, they now prefer cocktails and spirits to beer. For the brewers, it's a brave new world but they're determined to restake their claim. And that includes Miller. The Milwaukee brewery has survived prohibition thanks to some canny investments in bonds. Now, it plans to use these investment windfalls to finally break into the ranks of America's top brewers. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL and speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world, with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. 
from Wondery. I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. On the last episode, Prohibition brought the reign of the Gilded Age beer barons to a sudden end. Brewers like Anheuser-Busch and Miller kept afloat by making products ranging from malt syrup and soft drinks to ice cream and baker's yeast. But now, Prohibition's over, and a new battle for beer drinkers' dollars is brewing. There's no guarantee that the beer kings of yesteryear will reclaim their crowns, and that's why Miller reckons it can now make the leap from regional player to big-time brewer. This is Episode 2, Swinging for the Majors. It's March 1936, and the future has arrived at the Miller Brewing Plant in Milwaukee. Since the end of Prohibition, the Miller family has been spending big, sinking more than a million dollars into modernizing their aging brewery, and today, their biggest investment yet is about to go live with something brand new. Canned beer. The company's 69-year-old president, Frederick A. Miller, stares at the big red button in front of him. So I just, uh, press it? The plant's foreman nods. Okay, here goes. A warning siren blares as the enormous canning facility comes to life. Moments later, lidless cans start snaking through the plant on conveyor belts. The cans pass under spigots, dispensing amber liquid. Next, a machine seals a lid onto each can. Then, they're blasted with scalding steam to pasteurize the beer inside. After that, it's time for labeling and loading. This production line is bleeding-edge technology, delivering 200 cans of beer every minute. Five years ago, canned beer wasn't even an option because the metal would react with the beer and ruin the taste. But then came a big technological breakthrough that held huge promise. Vinylite. It's a plastic coating for the inside of cans that stops the taste-destroying reaction. Now, Miller Brewing is one of the first breweries in the country to build a canning production line. Miller sees it as critical to his brewery's future. Cans are cheaper than glass bottles and less fragile, making them better suited to long-distance shipping. Miller plans to use cans to take his best-selling beer nationwide. That beer is High Life. The company calls it the Champagne of Beers, and in Wisconsin, it's as popular as the big-name suds made by Pabst, Schlitz, and Anheuser-Busch. Miller figures if High Life's a winner in Wisconsin, well, it should do well in the rest of the country, too. But before his plan can deliver, two major events jeopardize his investment. First comes the economic recession of 1937. That seriously hurts sales of beers. America goes to war. Men of the Army, Navy, and Marines reinforce the battlefronts on six continents to save the homes and ideals of free men from Axis domination. Soon after, America enters World War II. The war divides brewers into haves and have-nots. 
The big brewers like Anheuser-Busch and Schlitz are the haves. They're the ones capable of supplying the U.S. military with enough beer to satisfy the troops. As a result, the war boosts their sales and introduces their brews to millions of GIs. Shut out of these lucrative military contracts are smaller brewers like Miller. They're left struggling to get hold of materials and ingredients. To survive, Miller cuts back on the kinds of beers it offers. By the end of the war, Miller only has one brand left. High Life. The momentum the company built a decade earlier has gone flat. Over in St. Louis, life at Anheuser-Busch isn't peaceful either. During the war, the older Bush brother, Adolphus III, took the reins as company president, but now his younger brother, Gussie, is back in town. Gussie spent the war as an army major in the Pentagon, but now he's home and he's on the warpath. He heads right for his brother's office and bursts in. Adolphus, what the hell have you been doing with a brewery while I've been in Washington? Damn it, Gussie, what is your problem? I've been running the business and we're doing just fine. Like hell we are. You're fine with Schlitz being the biggest brewery? We haven't been number two in 50 years. Adolphus sighs. Gussie might be in his mid-40s, but he's still as hot-tempered as ever. Gussie, you're missing the big picture here. We're making more beer and more money than we ever have. Second place isn't such a bad place to be. Gussie scowls. Second ain't worth squat. If I ran this business, we'd never accept second place. Well, you don't run this business, Gussie. I do. Gussie doesn't have to play deputy for long. In August 1946, Adolphus dies from stomach cancer. And Gussie, he takes over as president. And now that he's in charge, he's coming for Schlitz. But his rival is a fast-moving target. Like Miller, Schlitz is a family business started in Milwaukee by German immigrants in the 1850s. And its owners, the 400 or so members of the Eline family, are going all out to become the post-war brew kings. Schlitz's approach is to increase its brewing capacity by buying and building breweries. The company reckons if it makes more beer, it can sell more beer and increase its market share. And it starts its new drive for rapid expansion by buying out a brewery in Brooklyn. Over at Anheuser-Busch, Gussie catches on. He buys up a brewery of his own, an hour away in Newark, New Jersey. Soon, the two beer giants are locked in a neck-and-neck race for dominance. They cross the country buying up breweries and opening new plants. They encourage their local distributors to fight tooth and nail for every slice of market share. Their battle crushes small-town breweries, swallows up mid-sized competitors whole, and frightens survivors into hasty mergers. But as the two giants fight, Miller's busy trying to find a way to turbocharge its growth. It's early evening on December 17, 1954, and Miller Brewing President Frederick C. Miller is driving through downtown Milwaukee. He's on his way to General Mitchell Fields Airport, and he's in a good mood. For weeks, he's been finalizing the massive publicity campaign marking the company's 100th anniversary. 
He's hoping the celebrations will jumpstart high-life sales across the nation. A national breakthrough has been Miller's goal ever since he took charge of the family business back in 1947. As a part-time college football coach, he believes that taking on the likes of Anheuser-Busch and Schlitz is all about finding the right play. And he's hopeful that the company's centennial celebrations will be just the thing. As the airport looms into view, he glances at his 20-year-old son in the passenger seat. Next year's going to be big, son. I can feel it. It's going to be a turning point for the brewery. Miller's son gazes out the window. I know, Dad, and, and we can get into all that after the holidays, but, you know, this is supposed to be a vacation, remember? Okay, okay. I, I'm only going to talk about hunting moose from now on. Soon after, the company plane takes off with Miller and his son on board. But they never reach Canada. Moments after takeoff, engine failure causes the converted World War II bomber to crash. Miller, his son, and the two pilots don't survive. The tragedy leaves Miller Brewing without an heir. The company's finance chief fills the void, but, but he's a cautious man and hemmed in by the remaining Miller family members who resist every risky move. By 1957... The Miller Brewing Company is drifting, and its hope of a national breakthrough is fading. Miller's producing just over 2 million barrels of beer a year, down from 3 million at the start of the decade. But while Miller treads water over at Anheuser-Busch, well, Gussie's celebrating. His company's making more than 7 million barrels of beer a year, and that's allowed him to finally beat Schlitz. Anheuser-Busch is once again the king of beers. For Schlitz Vice President Robert Eline, it's a bitter pill to swallow. For years, he's been urging his uncle, the current CEO, to focus on grocery stores rather than bars. But his uncle won't listen. Instead, Eline has to watch as Anheuser-Busch reaps the rewards of the fast-growing take-home market. So, when Eline finally gets the top job at Schlitz in 1961, he is not about to squander business opportunities in the name of tradition. He wants to do something radical, something modern. So, he hires a squad of high-flying executives to transform the business. Marketing Vice President Fred Haviland is one of those recruits. Eline poached Haviland from Anheuser-Busch, and he arrives at Schlitz full of ideas that Gussie Bush once snubbed. Haviland joins Eline in his office to outline his plan to reinvent the company's approach. So I've been analyzing beer drinking behavior using that IBM computer you bought. I want to get inside the heads of beer drinkers and find out why they pick one brand over another. Now, <clears throat> usually in this business, we say it's about the taste, right? Eline nods. Well, I think that's bull. People buy the image, not the beer. People drink the beer that reflects who they are or who they aspire to be. So what I want to do is I want to recast the image of our beers so that they connect with different types of people, starting with old Milwaukee. Eline leans forward. He's keen to hear what Haviland's got in mind for Schlitz's bargain beer. What do you want to do? I want to make it a premium beer. New labels, without much imagery or words, and plenty of white space. That'll give it snob appeal. 
If we do this right, we can make people think it's a classy beer, and we can charge more, even if it's exactly the same. Eline raises an eyebrow. You're saying people won't notice that it's the same beer in a different package? Yeah, that's right. See, people notice changes in taste far less than we think. You could even alter the ingredients just a little bit, and most people wouldn't even notice. Eline's eyes widen. You're saying if we cut back on the cost of ingredients slightly, we get away with it? Most likely. Why? Because then we'd free up money for acquisitions and marketing. Well, now, if you're up for spending more on marketing, now, here's what I'd really like to do. Ultra-aggressive local campaigns. You see, we blitz individual counties with huge amounts of advertising and slash prices. The competition won't be able to match us and we'll suck up their market share. With that, Eline crosses his hands behind his head and leans back in his leather office chair, a contented smile spreading across his face. For decades, breweries have been rooted in romantic ideals of artisan brewers and family tradition. But Schlitz is about to turn the business of beer from an art into a science. And that's a threat big enough to spark family feuds within Miller and Anheuser-Busch. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's 1962 and Wisconsin's brewers are scared, and that's why 20 of them have come together for an emergency summit in Milwaukee. What's making them worried is Schlitz. The number two brewer is on the rampage. It's just relaunched Old Milwaukee with the advertising equivalent of a tactical nuclear strike, a $2 million marketing offensive concentrated in just five Wisconsin counties. To help justify Old Milwaukee's new higher price, the company's presenting it as the beer brewed for leisure, with illustrations of people playing golf, hanging out at the bowling alley, and lazing on the beach. The brewer who organized this emergency summit calls the meeting to order. Listen, I know we're usually rivals, but we've got to do something. None of us can match what Schlitz is spending. 
It's merciless. Do you know that? Right. The executives all nod in agreement. One jumps in. It's not just the ads. I heard this morning from a wholesaler that Schlitz has cut the price of old Milwaukee by 30%. 30%? 30%? 30%? No. That's ridiculous. That's going to kill me. There's a frantic outburst from the crowd. These brewers are already losing customers thanks to the advertising barrage. Now, Schlitz is gunning for extra shelf space with hefty discounts. But the brewers are in a sticky situation. They can't collude against Schlitz. That would be illegal. But none of them is strong enough to stop the Schlitz juggernaut on their own. If this continues, half of this room will be out of business in five years. He's wrong. Four years later, just three of those 20 Wisconsin breweries will still survive. It's a similar story across the country. Caught in the crossfire between Schlitz and Anheuser-Busch, mid-sized breweries are falling fast. Miller's feeling the heat, too. Since the mid-50s, it slowly crawled its way into the bottom end of the top 10 brewers list. But the gap between Miller and the top dogs is immense. Miller produces less than 5 million barrels of beer every year, while Schlitz and Anheuser-Busch each produce more than three times as much. There's another issue, too. The Miller descendant who owns the majority of the company has converted to Protestantism and become a supporter of temperance. So, in July 1966, she sells her entire stake in the brewery for $36 million. The move is opposed by the other remaining member of the Miller clan, but there's nothing he can do to stop it. After 111 years in the business, Miller Brewing is no longer under family control. The buyer is W.R. Grace & Company, a billion-dollar conglomerate with interests in chocolate, packaging, shipping, and now beer. But the Millers aren't the only beer dynasty feeling the pressure. It's May 1969, and the Anheuser-Busch Brewery in Houston is empty. Two weeks ago, the Teamsters called a strike after a fight with management about the terms of employment. Now, the two sides are in the plant's conference room trying to reach an agreement. Usually, Gussie Bush handles these disputes, but not today. Instead, he sent August III, his eldest son and marketing vice president. Gussie sees it as training for his 32-year-old heir apparent. But August III has ideas of his own. He's alarmed by Schlitz's embrace of new marketing and management practices. He thinks Anheuser-Busch is falling behind the times, so he's hired some hotshot MBAs and professors to modernize the business. But his 69-year-old pop won't listen to them. August III wants to use this labor dispute to show his father that he knows what he's doing. In an office inside the brewery, he meets with a handful of Teamster reps. He looks them right in the eyes from across the table and tries playing bad cop. Here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, I'm sending in non-union supervisors to start work on a new batch of beer. The Teamsters glance at each other and then back at the multi-millionaire executive with a slicked-down brown hair. One of the muscular reps leans forward and plants his palms on the table. You think you're the boss, huh? But if you cross that picket line, we'll show you who's really boss. August the 3rd gives the Teamsters a stern look. 
he's determined not to give in. The next day, he gives the go-ahead to his strike-breaking plan. In response, union workers put down their tools at every Anheuser-Busch plant. Gussie steps in to fix the mess. He makes a hasty deal with the Teamsters. But the company's still lost out on producing three million barrels of beer. Furious at his father's intervention, August the Third storms into Gussie's office and slams a letter down on the desk. Gussie looks up at his son. What's that? My resignation. If you don't trust me, then let me go. You need to stop being pushed around by the Teamsters. Gussie picks up the letter and flings it into the waste paper basket. The mess you created proves you're wrong. But I'm giving you another chance because you're a bush. But if you ever do anything like that again, the newspapers will have your resignation letter within five minutes. But while father and son are clashing at Anheuser-Busch, big changes are afoot at Miller. Changes that will soon turn the Milwaukee brewery into a major threat. It's June 1969, and Peter Grace, the president of W.R. Grace, the company that took over Miller, is sitting at the bar of an exclusive hotel in Paris. He nurses a whiskey sour while he thinks about the future of the brewery. Miller's been performing below expectations, so Grace is selling his company's stake in the business. He's got an offer from Pepsi, but he thinks he could do better. Trouble is... Pepsi isn't going to wait while he goes shopping for a better deal. To get another offer, he needs to find a company with plenty of cash and a strong desire to get into brewing. As he ponders potential suitors, Grace notices the woman next to him removing a cigarette from a packet of Marlboro. A smile breaks across his face. He knows exactly who to call. On the next episode... Miller creates marketing magic. Schlitz gives the Budweiser army the chills. And a power struggle breaks out at Anheuser-Busch. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe over the cover art and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. We hope you'll support our show by supporting them. Now, if you like what you've been listening to, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and maybe tell your friends how to subscribe too. There's another way you can support us and that's by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey. Don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. And we should say something about some of the conversations that you've been hearing in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost and Donna Hyams edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer-Beckman with sound design by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie, created by Hernan Lopez for Wondery. For over 100 years, General Motors was America's automaker. But after the 2008 financial crisis, the storied car company nearly died. 
Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, host of Wondery Show, Business Movers. We tell the true stories of business leaders who risked it all, the critical moments that define their journey, and the ideas that transform the way we live our lives. In our latest series, an HR executive named Mary Barra rises to become General Motors' first female CEO, just in time to save the company from ruin. But as Mary fights to lead General Motors into the future, tragedy strikes. Listen to General Motors Back from the Dead from Business Movers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or the Wondery app. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.